So welcome everybody to another episode of Data Talk. Um, firstly, I'm with my co-host, Omri. Omri, how's it going? You're in the States at the moment. How's life treating you? We're, we're enjoying a New York life. Uh, you can see the, the street behind me picking up. Um, in traffic, this is the 6th Avenue. Um, so we're seeing more and more people enjoying the city life, and that's, uh, that's great. That's uh, rejuvenating. Great. We, we can't wait to, to have you back in the office and see you. But in the meantime, we're very lucky to have a, a great guest uh, with us on this episode. Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to understand. Well, we, we really align, I think, in some of our values. Um, and I think that's going to be really interesting to, to discuss. Um, so Jeffrey, Jeffrey Stein from Deep Discovery. Thank you. We finally made it. We're getting to chat and learn all about the exciting things uh, that you're doing. Um, so thanks for taking the time out of your busy wedding uh, planning schedule to, uh, <laughs> to to chat with us today. So I thank you for having me here. This is great. Pleasure. Um, I was having a quick look at your LinkedIn uh, profile before we jumped on. And wow, I mean, I think you're the founder, I think, of three, uh, four. This is your fourth um, company that you founded. Uh, third artificial intelligence tech startup. And it all they all come really from a background of data and artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, I wanted to yeah. just take you back to your early years. Please. Um, into the, the, into the, your social activism and social change. And I think that I also, in previous uh, roles, worked with a lot of nonprofits, normally much smaller, um, and they're very careful with the way that they spend their donor dollars. Um, but I mean, coming from a background of working in the uh, in social activism and social change, and working with data, what kind of data can have a, a big impact and influence in in kind of social activism and social change today? That's a good question. What type of data? I mean, there's so many news stories. Um, and it's not just traditional news organizations. There's groups like Transparency International. So organizations structured as nonprofits are kind of maybe more uh, research organizations. You could say research and advocacy organizations, but they'll do in-depth reports maybe on, you know, uh, human trafficking or, you know, the, the plight of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Um, you know, uh, so... Uh, there are quite a variety of nonprofits that do that. And effectively, we did that even at, or, at uh, my first nonprofit. I worked at Taxpayers Common Sense of, uh, you know, in-depth research reports that expose, you know, wasteful government spending that harmed the environment. Uh, and I um, authored some of those reports as well. So definitely data plays a role in um, all of that. And I think more and more, um, you know, different nonprofits have different degrees of sophistication with data. Um, you know, most people have the ability to work with Excel, <laughs> but, you know, and you can do a lot with uh, data and Excel spreadsheets. Um, you know, I, that's probably where I first became a whiz. Um, you know, that's my fluency is, is in spreadsheets. I consider it like a, like a canvas, an artful canvas um, of what you can do with spreadsheets. But of course, there's limitations. Uh, so getting very large data sets, needing to bring many data sets together uh, is where you need to go to databases, whether relational databases. And then, you know, what we're doing at Deep Discovery is all focused around networks, networks of you know, organized crime and corruption. And so uh, that requires specialized databases, which I'll get 
into. But um, the, you know, like for example, there's a group, um, the World Resources Institute, which is a nonprofit, but they're very well-funded nonprofit, probably about a hundred million dollar year budget. And they're probably the most sophisticated I've seen with data. They, they created the Glo Global Forest Watch, uh, which is a mapping of uh, the destruction of forests over time. Uh, and a lot of kind of sophisticated parameters around that and search facilities. It's, it's a geospatial application. Um, it's a really good example of um, the power of what you could do with data. And it's the leading resource in the world for information about the destruction of forests and, and you know, that's driving climate change or impacting climate change. Is one that, Phil, my turn. Your turn. Um, is one that kind of works borderline between, you know, the business world and the NGO world, uh, yeah. for lack of a better term. Do you see a different approach to data, to the, um, I would say, even the onboarding, the compliance? Um, what kind of difference do you see in the onboarding of data between the two uh, sectors? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And then you, you've got in the business world, startups, you know, maybe growth stage companies and then very large companies. So uh, they'll have different um, requirements as well. So with Deep Discovery, our core commercial customers are large banks. So there's a lot of um, compliance issues, security issues like SOC 2 compliance, uh, you know, infrastructure um, integration issues. So that's much more complex. We had, uh, similarities at Orbital Insight when we were selling to government agencies, um, even with classified data. And so we had to have classified clearances, uh, for key employees, uh, for certain projects. So, uh, obviously that's way more sophisticated than nonprofits won't have that. So they tend to be more nimble in the, like, um, administrative side um, or the, the governance side. Uh, and journalists, you know, what's great about journalists in, is uh, from like our perspective and working with them is uh, an individual reporter that has an interest in data I can just take it and use it. He doesn't need to go to his boss, his editors, uh, the management of the news organization to get permission to use the data set. Um, you know, these are tend to be pretty independent projects or collaboration uh, with other individual journalists. So that's the other end of the spectrum. And then, you know, most nonprofits are going to be more similar to that is they'll, they'll take whatever data sets are mm -hmm. useful, take it in Excel or a relational database and, and go and run with it. And another question, actually, um, we see now, we actually did a survey a couple of weeks back around um, the adoption of ESG. Mm -hmm. uh, approach and data in, in corporations. And I think you were actually at the beginning of that evolution mm -hmm. or revolution, I, I even might, you yeah. know, say, I think it's, it's, you see today, you know, hedge funds and quant funds and ETFs that are ESG dedicated. And I think, I think it's a revolution. Um, yeah. What was at the beginning of it? How do you see the influence of those NGOs in that process? And uh, what do you think is the influence that actually kind of brought it uh, into full-blown activity today? Yeah, I have a little insight. The, the husband of my boss at my first job was a real pioneer in what's become the ESG movement. Um, so he um, 
work for an organization called Conservation International, which is a nonprofit group, very large group, again, like a hundred million dollar year budget, maybe. Um, but uh, very impactful around conservation of uh, wildlands and sensitive ecosystems. Um, and uh, the environmental uh, nonprofit movement tended to have an adversarial relationship with business and with corporations. You know, there is a lot of corporate activity that can be harmful for the environment when uh, not paying attention to one's impacts. And so that's where a lot of pollution comes from is institutions, companies, factories, these things. So, but they took a different approach and said, what if we actually, instead of fighting them, try to work with them and, and to educate them about the impacts and, and also the benefits and even the economic benefits of uh, stewarding the environment and, uh, you know, you know, paying attention to one's pollution profile and reducing it or eliminating it as much as possible. So uh, this man, Michael Totten, uh, who is the husband of my boss, um, was a real pioneer in that. And he went to Walmart <laughs> and he engaged them and worked with them uh, like uh, McDonald's and Starbucks. And uh, people thought he was crazy. And there was like, even within the, the kind of social world of uh, environmental nonprofits, people be like, that is crazy. He's almost like he's a traitor <laughs> betraying the movement uh, to work with the other side. But it was really effective. And, uh, and so I had a lot of insight to that. I had another close friend from business school who worked at Walmart before coming to Stanford Business School. And uh, she got put on the team and was actually like a key operations person for Walmart's sustainability efforts when they first launched it. And she worked directly with the CEO of all of Walmart and then the top uh, executive team. Uh, so I got a lot of insight there um, as to what was driving Walmart's efforts to go green. I mean, the, the interesting thing, the little story, this is an aside, is the the president of Conservation International took um, the chairman of Walmart um, to um, uh, on a like a canoe trip, uh, riverboat trip through the Amazon with his grandson. And the chairman of Walmart was also the chairman of the board of the nonprofit group Conservation International. So there, there was a longstanding relationship there uh, where he was uh, a donor. Uh, a major donor and supporter of the nonprofit. And actually, it's interesting. Most people don't know this. The Walton family behind um, Walmart is the largest benefactor of the U.S. environmental movement. Um, and so they, they, they have a lot of care for um, stewarding the environment. And so they went on this riverboat trip in the Amazon for a week. There's no cell reception, Wi-Fi. And uh, the president of Conservation International said, you know, thank you for all your philanthropy. It's been really beneficial. But imagine the impact you could have if you got your company itself to shift its behavior. That would be orders of magnitude, massive more impact in the world because of Walmart's global footprint. And so if you actually were proactive in sourcing sustainable materials, reducing pollution, using renewable energy, and dramatically reducing your environmental footprint, like what the ripples would be around the world. 
and doing that across your global supply chain. And it really was impactful. And so the chairman went for it. He re recruited the CEO of Walmart on board to the program and they launched this major sustainability effort. And then Walmart went overnight from being, you know, a major driver of the problem to the leading forefront of, you know, a leader in this ESG, uh, environmental, social governance, uh, you know, revolution. Yeah, super interesting. Um, it's funny how like one small event and like one, you know, question can have such a ripple effect um, through the entire That's world it. and how, you know, a single moment can have a have a lasting impact. So it's yeah. Very cool. That's what we're hoping to do with deep discovery too in the field of journalism. <laughs> so let's let's talk about deep discovery. Tell us about deep discovery. Well, sure. So, so the high level is we're building an artificial intelligence to combat global corruption. And I see this, you know, I've been environmental activist, but so many of our uh, challenges in the world have roots back to corruption. You know, my uh, fiance is from Venezuela and she hasn't been able to go back to see her family for years, the family that's still there, um, you know, with a collapse of the state, it's just not been safe. And there's too many countries in the world that are at various state, you know, levels of corruption that have, you know, creative failed states or ineffective states, um, you know, it's the drain of taxpayer resources that otherwise could be going to build up civil society. And uh, it also feeds conflict and polarization in politics, um, which is getting in the way of humans solving our greatest challenges, you know, climate change, you know, equity, pandemics, you know, our ability to coordinate. So it's a really big problem. And as I got into it, I was like, this is really something worth tackling. And, you know, fortunately, there's a burgeoning movement of innovators around climate change that's catalyzed and motivated a lot of innovators and entrepreneurs, renewable energy. So there's lots of people, good people working on these other social problems. When I looked at uh, corruption, um, you don't, there's a handful of nonprofits, but it's, it's relatively small number. And yet it's such a massive problem. The United Nations estimates uh, $3.6 trillion a year is money laundered and otherwise illicit finance. That's more, that's about 5% of the global GDP. So it's a major drain on the global GDP. And even that might be a, an underestimate. So, and we're not catching 5% of the people doing banking. Uh, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of the people engaged in money laundering and, and you know, illicit obtaining of funds, uh, criminal activity rings, you know, and, and criminals, you know, they're driven by the money. So if you can disrupt the money flows, then you can disrupt the crime um, or at least raise the cost uh, to being a criminal, which can, you know, make a difference. So in the Biden uh, administration has made this a top priority. So that's one of the dynamics we're playing into. And I could foresee even before Biden got elected, because I anticipated there would be a kind of, there was a swing one way in US politics um, to electing Trump, but there tends to be swings back and forth. And even if Biden hadn't been elected then, at some point it would swing back the other way. 
And there was highly likely to be a reaction to kind of the culture of corruption that we saw in the last four years um, to um, addressing corruption. And that's in fact what the Biden administration is doing. And they have uh, his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, has made uh, fighting uh, corruption uh, a top, top national security priority. There's an executive order Biden issued a couple months ago directing every federal agency within six months come up with a new plan for fighting corruption in terms of like how their activities at the State Department, USAID, the Defense Department, the intelligence agencies, like how they go about this. And so there's already a lot of um, rules and mandates on the banks to fight money laundering um, through know your customer uh, law requirements and filing of suspicious activity reports with the government. But I'm expecting this, the bar to raise even higher because right now there's a requirement for a compliance program, um, but there's a lot of ineffectiveness in it um, in reporting, but not so much action on what's being reported. Um, it's, it's a very much compliance mentality. There are some within the banking industry that are more progressive and proactive. And a lot of the people in the roles of uh, running anti-money laundering programs at the banks come from government agencies. So there's a professionalism and a passion for um, taking that role very responsibly. So that's the environment we're all playing into here at Deep Discovery is uh, building an AI to connect the dots between companies, between people and companies uh, and their activities, negative activities, and uh, from the perspective of networks and ultimately come up with uh, network-based risk assessment scores. Think like a credit scoring system like FICO, but a uh, financial crime risk assessment scoring system for every single company in the world and every director and officer of all the world's companies. You know, and that's that's a product available for banks uh, to use in their uh, know their customer uh, due diligence programs, compliance programs, but also government agencies, law enforcement. Uh, there is, um, you know, uh, investor due diligence. Um, people want to know who they're doing business with. Uh, the crypto world. Now, the crypto exchanges are also responsible for anti-money laundering, and there's requirements on them now, and there's extra challenges through the anonymity um, you know, on the ledgers, although true identities need to be registered when you, when you open an account in the exchange. So that's another application area for us. Also, supply chain risk assessment, knowing who your business partners are in the supply chain. And then lastly, uh, journalists, um, which was the motivation for starting uh, the business and we have a, a core social mission of using advanced AI technologies to empower uh, the world's best investigative journalists. And we are making the system available for free to them. So basically our commercial activities to, you know, selling to banks and others will subsidize our ability to provide this uh, system for free for journalists, um, which has never, they've never had uh, these sort of advanced technologies, um, which I can get into. You know, it's, it's, you talk about government agencies and billions of billions of budgets allocated from the government. What does a small startup with all of your, you know, will and might can contribute to such a, I would say, saturated environment? Oh, lots. Um, 
20, we're in 2021. It's a really good time for tech. Um, the, what used to take $10 million to build can be built with one or 2 million today. And what used to take a hundred million dollars to build can be built with $10 million. So, uh, I'm really excited for the impact we can make. Um, for example, you know, we, we only raised, um, two and a quarter million dollars of venture capital in January. We're quite a new company. We've already got a knowledge graph of over a billion entities uh, of companies from 160 nations in the world. So corporate registry data from 160 nations, uh, the directors and officers of those companies, you know, uh, addresses, uh, dates of when directors joined and the companies were incorporated, which is a foundational data set. And then we link many other data sets to that. Um, you know, there is uh, professional profile data. You know, um, there is shipping data, uh, you know, which allows linkages of trade relationships between companies. Um, airplane registries, uh, ship registries, yachts, you know, uh, people that are stealing money, drug cartels or, you know, oligarchs, um, you know, whoever is kind of stealing their money, they want to, or, or gaining it illicitly, arms traffickers, they want to spend that money usually. <laughs> and they tend to spend it on this kind of signals of the wealthy and living luxurious lives. So that's very, you know, expensive homes. So land registries and property registries, uh, data, you know, yachts, private jets. Um, so all these things are further indicators that we can use in creating profiles of, um, you know, it overlaps with wealthy people, but then there's connections into where it crosses over into criminal activity. Um, and so that's the other side. So the structured data sets, like some of those I just mentioned, um, but also uh, then news articles. So these are unstructured data, text data, uh, where we're applying natural language processing to do automated information extraction uh, of negative facts. So Acme Incorporated uh, committed fraud against this bank, according to the FBI. A sentence like that in the, in the news article that we automate the extraction out of. We, uh, uh, so the classifying the sentence of a type of crime, fraud, maybe a stage of the crime they've been accused or they've been convicted, uh, and then also attributing a responsible party, the Acme Incorporated, as opposed to the FBI, which is you know, a source making the attribution. So we already have that working uh, with a high um, accuracy rate right now. I think it's really cool that we're able to build that in just a few months, um, already get a system going. It's get, you know continually improving because there's reinforcement learning that we're doing. Um, but in extracting these negative facts, um, they get put into a knowledge graph and become the basis for the risk scoring. So there's, there's kind of two drivers of scores of risk. One is some lists of kind of known bad guys uh, various watch lists, including uh, link lists of sanctioned people and companies. Um, so that's pretty straightforward um, because already people across the banking sector have those lists and are referencing them. But then co the combination of the news articles. So there's only 180,000, well, there's 180,000 entities on 
all the different sanctions lists around the world. Um, that's a lot. And also there's way more people engaged in money laundering and illicit activity. It's in the millions. And so uh, it takes a lot to get put on a sanctions list. And it's where it overlaps with the national security interests that then the United States say, placing them under sanctions, but kind of otherwise run of the mill criminals, <laughs> which still is uh, a liability for the banks and still of interest to other government agencies. Um, aren't on the sanctions list, but still engage in activity. And often the journalists are the ones to kind of identify activity and report on it. Uh, but it might be reported on in a newspaper in the Czech Republic or in Latvia, not in the United States. And so that person then goes to do business at Citibank in, in New York. They, um, you know, Citibank wants to be interested, try to find those articles. So there are some existing news, negative news screening services. Um, and again, the banks also screen against these sanctions lists. So they are re required actually to do know your customer due diligence. So they look up every single new client as well as periodic, but it's only like every four years or so review of existing clients, but they'll look up every new client in these databases or negative news screening services. They pay a lot of money for it, um, can be in the millions of dollars for these services for a very large bank. And um, doing these lookups, um, the thing is there's a high rate of false positives. In fact, over 90% of uh, the results in these news uh, screening are false positives because there's a lack of entity resolution. So my name, Jeffrey Stein, is very common. How do we, how's the bank know this Jeffrey Stein is the same as or different than another Jeffrey Stein, right? Um, and so there's a, uh, that's not done with the news articles. It's just, here's 50 news articles about Jeffrey Stein. And then the bank has, has to have an employee sift through the results. And usually the human can determine, oh, okay, this guy's work, a football player. And the Jeffrey Stein coming to us is a tech entrepreneur probably not the same person, we can throw that out. Or if the bank has my age, um, and then you know it's about a Jeffrey Stein still in high school, obviously it's not relevant. So the, but it's a very laborious process, which drives up the cost for the banks. So for however many millions they're spending on software and third-party data services, they're spending, you know, you know, five to 10 times that amount on human labor huge teams of people to do manual reviews because of the poor uh, results and the, and the lack of entity resolution. So that's a major thing we're addressing. Um, we've been building our own entity resolution system. We have ex world-class experts in entity resolution on the team. And uh, we're using novel approaches going beyond just matching, exact matching of names. Uh, there's there, fuzzy matching of names that's commonly done, matching of addresses, but taking into account like age ranges. But really key also for us is looking at pairings of people in the network. So pairs of people on uh, boards of directors allows, if it's common that two people serving on one board may also serve on another board of a different company at the same time. And so we can infer linkages between not just those people, but also the banks. And that makes it more unique. If Jeffrey Stein is sitting on a board with Omri Organ, 
now you've made Jeffrey Stein a much more unique name through that pairing. Um, and so uh, it's techniques like these and others, uh, looking at the timing and when companies are incorporated and there's machine learning applied. Um, and so we're really building a world-class entity resolution system. That's one of the, the key foundational technologies uh, for this overall risk rating system, because you need to uh, have a confidence level that these are the same or different people. In fact, every single um, uh, edge relationship between nodes in our graph database uh, has a confidence score. Um, so we also have transparency uh, as to how we generated these risk rating systems. And that influences the risk scores. So you might have a really bad negative attribution in a news article about somebody, but if I can't, you know, resolve the identity with confidence, then there would actually be a low risk score. Um, and, uh, or if we very have very high confidence, a more unique name, or because of the pairings of the names, um, that we positively identified uh, the entities and people, um, then the negative facts associated with them are going to have much drive a much higher risk score. I think it's it's very interesting because we we discuss you know with Bright Data that the internet is a kind of a subset of the reality, right? Hmm. That everything on the internet is you know today on or, or the web is basically the reality. Um, and you discuss or your point of view of um, the money, I would say money market, because not every money is laundered, but the, the entire money market or the money wiring sphere is basically public. So the, the entire information is public and all we have to do is kind of connect the dots, right? This is kind of, because you talk about like, when we look at public data, you discuss uh, government registries of people that are buying homes, they have licenses to, uh, I don't know, drive, you know, expensive car or yachts or whatever. Um, they have to, uh, you know, ship something from place. So everything is public basically. And everything we have to do is connect the dots, right? This is kind of the claim yeah. to fame as I understand. Because this is really, will illustrate what the potential is for impact here with public data pulled from across the global internet. So um, I had mentioned earlier that I was working with journalists with um, various investigations using satellite imagery. So I got involved in investigation in Venezuela with the, the leading journalist in Venezuela, investigative journalist. He's award-winning international awards, reported the Panama Papers for Venezuela down there. And uh, he'd long been investigating whether Venezuela was supplying uranium to Iran for its nuclear program. And it was out in the open that Iran had sent scientists to Venezuela to explore for uranium and uh, map out the resources. But, you know, it only been rumored that uranium was going back to Iran, which obviously would be a big violation of the international sanctions. And so very problematic for Iran, but it would also be for Venezuela too. And we found with satellite imagery, a clandestine uranium mine deep in the rainforest of Southern Venezuela. It was publicly known as a clay mine, industrial clay, uh, but all the satellite imagery uh, showed design features of the mine that were consistent for uranium mining, but didn't make sense for clay. 
Vladimir Putin was going on state visits to Venezuela, talking about the claim line. It was a great cooperation between the two companies, countries, which made it stand out as an anomaly and draw attention to it. Why, why, why the interest in the otherwise economically minor operation? Uh, the mine was destroyed about a year before we started our investigation. So why would somebody destroy $20 million of infrastructure? What's going on? What's being covered up? And then furthermore, there was uh, this scientific exchange between the two countries produced a, a map of where the uranium was, but the Venezuelans involved never saw the map, according, you know, according to the journalists I was working with that interviewed these people. So... I stumbled across the map, first of all, in, through internet archives. On the Iranian Ministry of Mining's website, they had historical photos in internet archives. It wasn't on the current website version, but in the archives was photos of the meetings between the scientists. And on the back wall was the map of where the uranium was in the country, including at the site of this uh, clay mine, which there are other maps of uranium in the country that Venezuelan scientists have made, but none had ever put uranium at that site. So pretty strong evidence, you know, all around from this, that this uh, looked like a uranium mine. So the natural question was, who are the people behind the mine? And this is where we got into these other data sets from across the web, the corporate registry data. So uh, the CEO was a Russian national he had no background in mining before coming to Venezuela. So how does he come there, start a mine? He also bought up all the other gold mines in the country from big international companies. So he previously worked for a Swiss bank and even right before that was working for a Russian oligarch, one, one of the most wealthy uh, men in Russia at the time and insider in the Kremlin with ties to the KGB and mafia. And the two of them, engaged in a $100 million fraud of a bank in Thailand. And we find that out through news article searches. So just searching this name in uh, corporate registry databases, uh, there's press releases connecting him to the bank. There's other articles describing his participation in the fraud and relationship, you know, employment relationship with the oligarch. And then looking at, well, is this one bad apple that's associated with the bank or is there any pattern? And we found there was a pattern. The bank was a buying a series of operating companies, and one of which was a major supplier of industrial equipment to the cement industry and was supplying $25 million a year of equipment to companies in Iran that were sanctioned. And then separately, it bought a nuclear power plant uh, that was of the same reactor design as the Boucher reactor. They're trying to build in Iran, and they're struggling to get spare parts out of Germany because of the sanctions. Uh, and then lastly, the bank acquired a paper mill that was the exclusive supplier of paper for the Swiss franc and supplied 10% of the paper for the euro when the euro was launched. And the bank put in charge as president of the paper mill when they acquired it, a man who himself was on the international sanctions list for having been a banker to the Slobodan Milosevic regime during the Balkan Wars. And there's a Japanese news investigation which showed the bank he led in Cyprus was engaged in large-scale money laundering and weapons trafficking for the regime. So putting it all together, it looked like this is an organized crime network, not just one bad apple, an organized crime network centered around the small Swiss bank, which was actually publicly traded. And that was also very eye-opening is that crime doesn't just occur with offshore shell companies, which is a big part of the problem and was very much involved here, but also there criminals are buying up basically penny stocks, doing corporate rating, um, you know, stripping profits out. They're buying up publicly traded companies to, you know, uh, 
legitimize otherwise um, suspicious activity um, and, and kind of whitewash the activity. And there's less scrutiny on publicly traded companies than offshore shell companies um, at, in certain respects. So it was really illuminating. And, um, you know, the big aha insight that let me start deep discovery here was that there's so much data on the open in internet that you can detect real world crime networks. I mean, this is the sort of stuff the CIA does and the best investigative journalists do, sleuthing. And I basically became a journalist for a year working with this journalist in Venezuela and learned the craft and uh, is very data-driven journalism. And um, it was tens of thousands of Google searches, but I had built two AI companies previously. So I knew the, what machine learning was capable of and also its limitations, but the sort of tasks we were doing to look up names and databases, look up variation spellings of those names, look up who are the other members of the board of directors along with this person, what other companies are those board members involved in and who else serve on boards with them or officers with them and build out the network. Those, that's a recursive task. And so we can automate that. And then we can use natural language processing to read articles. Computers are now getting as good as humans at reading and reading comprehension, which humans have to go to sleep, but computers don't. And so they, you could read the whole internet. You can read it continuously every day, all news articles published anywhere around the world and automatically extract out structure, you know, and make unstructured information structure, putting in database, know, classifying it and then using it in a pipeline to drive continuous updates of risk rating systems. And it's a global monitoring system. So the, my big vision with Deep Discovery, you know, I was inspired also by the Panama Papers, which is the largest leak in journalism history, 10 million documents. Uh, it took uh, 400 journalists from 100 countries working in secret together over six months to report on these and they generate hundreds, actually over a thousand news articles, you know, corruption and, um, you know, you know, illicit behavior of heads of state, I think 60 different heads of state, including some prime, prime minister of Iceland lost his job, the prime minister of uh, Pakistan was implicated and ended up voting out of office, even David Cameron, prime minister of Britain was in rocky position uh, at the end of his term there as a result of the Panama Papers. So one of the, the, the biggest, most impactful news investigations in history. Um, and in major leak, there's been many other leaks too, large scale leaks and the WikiLeaks, you know, as well. I look at the internet itself as the largest leak in history from a journalistic perspective. And if you, what happens when you take the mindset of a journalist and say, there is so much open data out there. And this goes to what you're saying earlier, Omri, of like, you know, th there's so much uh, in the public domain. What can we do with it? And I'm taking a journalistic frame, but with the tools of artificial intelligence. So it's a completely novel type of investigation, news investigation that's never been done before, a big data web scale investigation uh, to, you know, really uncover the truth. And it's not that we're going to completely end corruption um, just from this one company's activities, but we can make a dent in the problem. We can make, increase the cost of doing crime and uh, give much more powerful tools 
to uh, government like the US Treasury Department, the banks, the journalists, um, and that's that will make contribute to a healthier society. Um, that's it's transparency is the best disinfectant for corruption. I think it's also I'm, I'm listening through uh, everything uh, you said, and I think and, and also kind of tying it back to the uh, earlier topic, uh, the environment. And I think it's not a dent. I think it's um, yeah. somebody needs to accelerate. Somebody needs to make the initial push. And when you look at processes, you know, first they, and there's all those saying, first they say you're crazy, they laugh at you, and then they agree with you. I think yeah. it's exactly that. I think um, I'm, I'm coming from the data world, so I see, you know, the more the commercial sides of the, you know, the e-commerce and the investments and, and, and security and all those. But I think it's always, it always starts with a crazy guy or, you know, any other option. I've been I've been the crazy guy for a lot of my life. <laughs> that that's that and I'm that's definitely a, the crazy one in my family too. <laughs> and and that's a great place to take her. That, that's a great place to be. And I think when we look, you know, at the role, I, I I think what you're making people understand is first of all that everything is there. Yeah. I'm not positive that people understand outside of our market, understand the the might of the public data mm-hmm. as, as a tool for any, anything, for any decision. You know, if it's, yeah. you know, police governing, you know, business, whatever. Um, I think this is kind of uh, this, I would say the side revolution that even though companies are using data today, I'm not sure that when you look at, even within a different companies and different, you know, police matters or federal agencies, that everybody looks at data the same. Correct. Correct. I think that's the biggest uh, hurdle that you have right now is the, and maybe it's, it's kind of a question is, can, how, do you make, how do you make them trust the data? I mean, I'm, I'm taking the crazy, you know, stakeholder in a government agency, you, know, you have the DEA and the FBI and all those guys, and you come up with a file and say, this company, they're doing something funny. Yeah, well, transparency, radical transparency, which is built into the product. So we are generating risk scores. Um, But the purpose of the risk score is um, network information. So there's plenty of tools to visualize networks. Um, But, and they always look cool. And often people are like, go, wow, that looks great. That's amazing. But from a day-to-day usage perspective, it can be overwhelming to an analyst, uh, particularly a complex network that goes, say, beyond 100 nodes or even 50 nodes. Uh, so how do you make sense of all these connections and what's going on? Uh, and that's something we're innovating upon. Um, we have an amazing front end, um, uh, head of front end engineering. He used to be head of interactive graphics for The Guardian and The New York Times. And I hired him specifically for that background. He also had a lot of experience working with other AI uh, startups in the Valley. Um, But he has a real skill in narrative storytelling from data. And that's what we need to do to help people make sense of complex networks. Uh, Because, and we can't just simplify it because the real world, that's how crime is done is through complex networks. I believe criminals intentionally used complexity as a strategy to evade detection. 
by the authorities. Uh, it just becomes too difficult to connect the dots about who's really doing what. But we have the technology to cut through that complexity and make sense of it. Now, if you're a trained FBI analyst or CIA analyst, those are the ones that can deal with the complex networks because that's their day in day out jobs. Uh, the analysts at the banks doing anti-money laundering, it's much more like a factory. They're just trying to do cases and like move through as many cases as possible, as quickly as possible, verify identities, you know, kind of triage it. And they don't really get into the network analysis only occasionally when there's like a high enough trigger, um, of warranting an in-depth investigation, what's called enhanced due diligence. And even then it's, it's rare, but the real world activity is done through the network. So most of the actual true financial crime is going undetected, even though there's billions of dollars spent by banks. You know, a major large bank will do spend over hundred million dollars a year on their anti-money laundering compliance program. It's massive. Um, and the large banks have still been getting large fines despite these compliance programs because it's, it, there's lapses in them. So uh, the, the thing here is the, the risk scoring allows uh, focusing human attention and say, trust the system is what we're asking the analysts to do. So it's an easier cognitive task to uh, validate why we came up with a risk score and say, oh, I can see here's the red dots in the network. If the red dots represent the bad guys, which they actually do in our application, <laughs> what we call uh, dark nodes. Uh, and then we also identify gray nodes, which are the associates of the known bad guys, the ones that are on the sanctions and other watch lists. So also, so this is part of the technique for sense making, color coding, the thickness of the edges between the nodes, uh, the size of the nodes, uh, little disks around the nodes of uh, that indicate uh, you know percentage out of a hundred or, or on the scale of a hundred of the risk score. So things at a glance to identify where in the network is the risk, but also being uh, presenting the source documentation that drove that risk score. So we're summarizing, we're doing the sense making, but it's an easier cognitive task to do validation rather than here's a bunch of raw data and you make sense of it. Uh, and those risk scores are also generated based upon, you know, there's ways to compare to peers. So how common is it that a Swiss bank is buying a nuclear power plant, you know? If it was Duke Energy, one of the major energy companies in the Southeast of the US buying a nuclear power plant, that would not be suspicious as, at all because that's their line of business. It's unusual for a small bank to buy a nuclear power plant, let alone one that has ties to Russian oligarchs um, or other ties to sanctioned entities in Iran. So you putting it all in context, putting context compared to other peers in the industry, by size of company, um, you know, uh, all of these contextual information helps with the sense making. But the main reason for those risk scores is, here's the answer. We want over time, the analysts and, and our customers to just trust it. Now, the way we're gonna get them to trust it is through that radical transparency of how we generated the risk score and all the data is laid out there. But it's really all that visualization, the, the sourcing of the, the news articles. So we, we rank them. So existing news screening services 
negative news screening services just give you a dump of 50 news articles, but there's no prioritization. So here we prioritize them like Google does with its search results of according to their contribution to the risk score. We have sound key diagrams, which is a great way to visualize um, the relative contribution um, in this case to risk score from different sources. So there's a lot of like innovative methods we're using to um, change the way that people can interpret and make it much easier to interpret uh, much more quickly um, data from a complex network. Very interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Blown away kind of on, on multiple levels. Jeffrey, again, thank you so much. It's been really interesting to, to listen to you speak and, you know, the passion about uh, change and social activism. Um, I, I've really enjoyed it and I hope that in a year or two we can do it again and, and keep uh, keep following the, the journey sure. that uh, you're at the very beginning of. For sure. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me here. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much.